So thanks for hanging in to the last day of the meeting. Boy, Saturday morning of the last day of a meeting, that's, that's commendable. So we're going to be doing a little debate here. So you would think I would cut my partner in crime a little slack, considering that A, she's my daughter, and that B, she's six months pregnant, but no, I'm not. So I plan on being merciless and crushing her as I see fit. Of course. You're good with that, right? Sure. I mean, why should now be any different, yeah. right? There you go. All righty. So... Apparently, we have nothing to disclose, or at least nothing you will remember after this session. <laughs> Here, our objectives is after weighing the evidence supporting and refuting the claim that cannabis, given concurrently with an opioid, reduces the risk of opioid-induced death. And then, after I crush her into the ground with that one, weigh the evidence supporting and refuting the claim that a gabapentinoid, given concurrently with an opioid, increases the risk of opioid-induced death. So to get things started with the cannabis one, everybody has to vote. I want to see every armpit in the room, okay? So as you stand right now, what do you think? The concurrent use of cannabis with an opioid reduces the risk of opioid overdose or death. Who says absolutely that's true? Okay, who says, I'm not so sure about that. Okay, okay. who says no way in the world? So a couple no ways, but most people are like, nah, I don't know, I don't know. So I think we've heard a lot, at least about the potential of cannabis use and opioids used concurrently in having some sort of opioid sparing effect. So I think there's been a lot of hype around that, but whether or not that's true kind of remains to be seen. So this first uh, study was based on the National Epi Epidemiologic Survey on Alcohol and Related Conditions, or NISARC, prospective study. So their objective was to determine whether cannabis use is associated with a change in the, the risk of incident non-medical prescription opioid use and opioid use disorder at a three-year follow-up. So the authors used logistic regression models to assess prospective associations between cannabis use at wave one, which was between 2001 and 2002, and non-medical opioid use and prescription opioid use disorder at wave two, which was between 2004 and 2005 of the NISARC, that National Epidemiologic Survey on Alcohol and Related Conditions. So corresponding analyses were performed among adults with moderate or more severe pain and with non-medical opioid use at wave one, and cannabis use and, non and prescription opioid use were measured with a structured interview throughout these waves. Other covariates that they included in their logistic regression model included age, sex, race and ethnicity, anxiety or mood disorders at baseline, any kind of family history of drug, alcohol, or behavioral problems. So what did they find? Wave one cannabis use was associated with increased incident non-medical prescription opioid use and opioid use disorder at wave two. Among adults with pain in wave one, cannabis use was also associated with increased non-medical opioid use and approach significance with, in, with incident prescription opioid use disorder. Among adults with non-medical opioid use at wave one, cannabis use was also associated with an increase in non-medical opioid use. So what did the authors conclude? They concluded that cannabis use actually appeared to increase rather than decrease the risk of developing non-medical prescription opioid use and opioid use disorder. So somewhat dispelling the myth that 
potentially we can use cannabis to treat opioid use disorder or that it has some sort of opioid sparing effect. So problematic use of cannabis, is it inconsequential in our patients with pain? And I'll let you be the judge. So in looking at this, the objective of this study was to assess the prevalence rates and correlates of problematic use of prescription opioids and medical cannabis among patients receiving treatment for chronic pain. So this was a cross-sectional study, including two leading pain clinics in Israel. They included close to 1,000 patients, so something like 888 patients receiving treatment for chronic pain, of which 99.4% re- received treatment with prescription opioids or medical cannabis. So they were looking at the problematic use of prescription opioids in medical cannabis using dsm 4 criteria, Portnoy's criteria, and the COM, or the Current Opioid Misuse Measure Questionnaire. So what did they find? They found that among individuals treated with prescription opioids, the prevalence of problematic opioid use according to these criteria, so dsm 4 Portnoy's criteria, and the COM, looking just at dsm 4 was 52.6%. Among those treated with medical cannabis, the prevalence of problematic cannabis use, according to dsm 4 was around 21.2%. Problematic use of opioids and cannabis was more common in individuals using medications for longer periods of time, reporting higher levels of depression and anxiety, and using alcohol or drugs. Problematic use of opioids was associated with higher self-reported levels of pain, and problematic use of opioids being more common among individuals using larger amounts of medical cannabis. So what did they conclude? They concluded that the problematic use of opioids is very common among chronic pain patients treated with prescription opioids and is more prevalent than problematic use of cannabis among those receiving medical cannabis. So really getting at the fact that pain patients need to be effectively screened for risk factors for problematic use before initiating long-term treatment for pain control. Now, does cannabis reduce opioid use and improve symptoms in patients with chronic pain? Mm, yes and no. So there's some thought that they, the two could potentially act synergistically. So not really getting at an opioid sparing effect necessarily, although maybe, but the fact that it may improve the efficacy of the treatments compared to either alone. So this first study was looking at whether cannabis reduces opioid use in chronic pain patients with low back pain. So this was a retrospective cohort study used to examine the association between enrollment in the New Mexico Medical Cannabis Program and opioid prescription use. They included 37 habitual chronic pain patients enrolled in this medical cannabis program between 2010 and 2015 and compared those to 29 non-enrolled patients. They used the PDMP opioid records over a 21-month period to measure cessation, which was defined as the absence of opioid prescription activity during the last three months of observation, and reduction, which they calculated in average daily IV morphine equivalents. The medical cannabis program patient reported benefits and side effects of using cannabis one year after enrollment were also collected. 
So what did they find? By the end of the 21-month observation period, medical cannabis program enrollment was associated with a 17.3 higher age and gender-adjusted odds of ceasing opioid prescriptions, 5.1 higher odds of reducing daily prescription opioid dosages, and a 47% reduction in daily opioid doses relative to a mean change of positive 10.4% in the comparison group. The monthly trend in opioid prescriptions over time was negative among the medical cannabis program patients, but not statistically different from the comparator group. Survey responses of these patients indicated improvements in pain reduction, quality of life, social life, activities of daily living, and concentration, and relatively few side effects from using cannabis one year after enrollment in the medical cannabis program. So what did they conclude? The clinically and statistically significant evidence of an association between medical cannabis program enrollment and opioid program cessation and reductions um, and improved quality of life really warrants further investigation on cannabis as a potential therapeutic alternative to prescription opioids for managing chronic pain, but really cannot be generalized to the larger population as this was a relatively small study. Now, the thought behind this next study was that cannabinoids and opioids, as I mentioned earlier, share several pharmacologic properties and may potentially act synergistically. However, the pharmacokinetics and the safety in humans really was unknown. So this, again, a relatively small study, 21 individuals with chronic pain on BID dosing of sustained release morphine or oxycodone were enrolled and admitted for a five-day inpatient stay. Participants were asked to inhale vaporized cannabis in the evening of day one, three times a day on days two through four, and in the morning of day five. Blood sampling was performed at Q12 hour intervals on days one and five, and the extent of chronic pain was also assessed daily. So what did they find? The pharmacokinetic investigations revealed no significant change in the area under the plasma concentration time curves for either morphine or oxycodone after exposure to cannabis, and pain was significantly decreased an average of 27% after the addition of vaporized cannabis. So the authors concluded that vaporized cannabis augments the analgesic effects of opioids without significantly increasing adverse effects or altering plasma opioid levels. So this combination may potentially allow for opioid treatment at lower doses with fewer side effects, so getting to the potentially opioid-sparing effect. Now, this next study was called the Pain and Opioid In-Treatment Study. So the authors aimed to investigate cannabis use in patients living with chronic non-cancer pain who had been prescribed opioids, including they collected a lot of information, so their reasons for use and perceived effectiveness of cannabis, associations between the amount of cannabis use and pain, mental health-related questions, and opioid use, the effect of cannabis use on pain severity and interference over time, and potential opioid-sparing effects of cannabis. It was a prospective national observational cohort study of people with chronic non-cancer pain prescribed opioids. Participants were recruited through community pharmacies across Australia 
Between 2012 to 2014, they completed baseline interviews and were followed up with phone interviews or self-completed questionnaires yearly for four years. Participants were asked about lifetime and chronic pain and past year chronic pain conditions, the duration of their chronic non-cancer pain, pain self-efficacy, whether pain was neuropathic in nature, lifetime and past 12-month cannabis use, the number of days cannabis was used in the past month, and current depression and generalized anxiety disorder, whether those were present, yes or no. They also estimated the average daily oral morphine equivalent doses of opioids. So a little over 1,500 participants completed the baseline interview and were therefore included in the study. They found that cannabis use was very common and that by the four-year follow-up period, 24% of participants had used cannabis with the goal of treating their chronic pain. Interestingly... Interest in using cannabis for pain increased from around 33% of participants at baseline to around 60% at the four-year mark. So interest going up pretty dramatically. Now, at the four-year follow-up, compared with people with no cannabis use, they found that participants who had used cannabis had a greater pain severity score, which increased with frequency of use. They also found that participants who used cannabis had a greater pain interference score, lower pain self-efficacy scores, and greater generalized anxiety disorder severity scores. And importantly, they found no evidence of a temporal relationship between cannabis use and pain severity or pain interference and no evidence that cannabis use reduced prescribed opioid use or increased rates of opioid discontinuation. So their interpretation was that, yes, cannabis use was common in people with chronic non-cancer pain who had been prescribed opioids, but they found no evidence that cannabis use improved patient outcomes. People who used cannabis had greater pain, lower self-efficacy in managing their pain, and no evidence that it reduced pain severity or interference or exerted any kind of opioid-sparing effect. So the main takeaway here is that as op medical cannabis use increases on a global scale, it's critically important that more well-designed, large clinical trials, which include patients with complex comorbidities that we are used to seeing in clinic or in the inpatient setting, um, are conducted to determine the efficacy of cannabis for managing chronic non-cancer pain. Now, this study, <clears throat> you know, this is getting back to the fact of the notion that there's some sort of synergistic activity between cannabinoids and mu opioid receptor agonists. So this study, you know, we had seen some of that effect in earlier animal studies, but not really a whole lot of data in human participants. So in order to demonstrate this effect under human clinical conditions, authors conducted this randomized double-blind trial in 100 patients after radical prostatectomy. So from the evening before the operation until the morning of post-op day two, 100 patients received eight oral doses of either placebo or five milligrams of delta-9 tetrahydrocannabinol in the form of synthetic THC or dronabinol, so five milligrams of dronabinol. Postoperatively, patients had access to patient-controlled analgesia with the micro-opioid agonist pirotiramide, which was interesting, at 48 hours. So they were allowed to continue the PCA for 48 hours. 
They expected, or their hypothesis, was that patients receiving dronabinol would require significantly less pyritiramide, or the micro-opioid agonist, compared to patients receiving the placebo. So in terms of their results, the consumption of pyritiramide was recorded in all 100 patients. Patients in the placebo group consumed a median of 74 milligrams. Patients in the intervention group consumed a median of 54 milligrams. And the difference between these two groups was not statistically significant. They collected plasma concentrations of THC in all patients in the intervention group, which are shown here under the results section. So in conclusion, the authors found neither a synergistic nor even an additive antinociceptive interaction between THC and the micro-opioid agonist pyritiramide in the setting of acute postoperative pain. Looking at whether cannabis is helpful during opioid substitution therapy, so a little bit different patient population. So this was a retrospective cohort study using the electronic medical records from 58 clinics offering opioid agonist therapy in Canada. They looked at one-year treatment retention as the primary outcome, and they uh, you know, looked at a whole lot of other things in terms of secondary outcomes. So in terms of the results, the cohort consisted of a little over 600 patients that were considered baseline cannabis users and 256 that were considered heavy users. Patients with baseline cannabis use and heavy cannabis use were at an increased risk of dropout. And when evaluating these trends by gender, only female baseline users and male heavy users were at an increased risk of premature dropout. So their interpretation was that both baseline and heavy cannabis use are predictive of decreased treatment retention and differences do exist between genders. So physicians and other healthcare providers really need to closely monitor cannabis using patients and provide education surrounding the potential harms of using cannabis while receiving treatment for opioid use disorder. For the sake of time, we're going to skip these next two. This was really just showing whether the THC morphine combination improves pain better than either alone. And really, they showed that THC did not significantly reduce pain. In the cold and heat tests, it even produced hyperalgesia. A slight additive analgesic effect was observed for the THC morphine combo in the electrical stimulation test. No analgesic effect resulted in the pressure and heat test. And this was just a nice article by Chu and colleagues back in 2016, more of an editorial, looking at some of the potential problems with substituting cannabis for opioids in the midst of the opioid epidemic. Because I think that is where a lot of the hype surrounding the relaxation of the uh, legality surrounding cannabis use is targeted is that, okay, we're in the midst of this epidemic. What can we do to help? What other alternatives or options do we have in our toolbox to potentially reduce opioid use? But you can see that there's still a lot of unknowns. There's really not a whole lot of data, and there is a lot of hesitancy on the part of providers due to this relative lack of data. And with that, I will pass the torch. Wow, she really rained on my parade, didn't she? Debbie Downer there. So let's see if I can do some damage control here. Um, 
So obviously, anything we can do to reverse this opiate epidemic would be a really cool thing. So what's with this? This was a billboard in Colorado saying, holy moly, states that legalize marijuana had 25% fewer opioid-related deaths. So is there truth in advertising? So this was a study where uh, they wanted to see what happened in states where they had laws legalizing medical cannabis. It was a time series analysis of medical cannabis laws and state-level death certificates from 1999 to 2010. And three of the states had already had medical cannabis laws in place prior to the beginning of the study, and then several joined in during their study period. And they did find that overall, those states um, with medical cannabis laws did have a 24.8% lower mean annual opiate overdose mortality rate versus those states that did not. So those that enacted the laws during the study period, it was not quite as striking, obviously, because they were kind of rolling in their data over that period of time. But I mean, I think it's kind of hard to argue with this. I mean, I understand everything Alex just said, but I mean, that's pretty significant, 25% fewer overdose deaths. So timing is really of the essence here. Wait, I have to say, (laughs) I'm such a good mother, I actually gave her this article. And I happily took it because really this disproves everything she just said. So this really made my job a lot easier here. So this was a UPenn study that basically repeated and used the same protocol as um, the Stanford study. So they included this time because it was, you know, since a lot more states have relaxed their legalization um, surrounding cannabis. So this time they included all 50 states um, and only 13 had legalized cannabis. They repeated the Stanford study through 2017, where 29 states had legalized cannabis, and they showed an increase in opioid-related deaths in states where cannabis was legalized. They stated that we find it unlikely that medical cannabis, which was used by about 2.5% of the U.S. population, has exerted large conflicting effects on opioid overdose mortality. So the results of the 2014 UPenn study may have reflected policies and conditions in liberal, potentially wealthier states that had legalized medical marijuana use, and also, and very importantly, had better access to addiction medicine, medication-assisted therapy, and medications like naloxone. Fair point. Well made. Huh? But, but what do patients say about this? I actually paid for this clip art because I liked it so much. So when you ask people, why are you using medical cannabis? Look at pain. Wow, that's like number one, followed by anxiety, back pain, insomnia, migraines, depression, so forth and so on. Uh, So this is a patient self-report using cannabis as a substitute for opioids, survey of almost 3,000 medical cannabis patients, asking their perception of the usefulness of using cannabis instead of opioids. 34% said they had uh, used opioid-based pain medicine in the previous six months, and 97% strongly agreed uh, that taking cannabis concurrently allowed them to reduce their use of opioid. 81% agreed or strongly agreed that taking cannabis was more effective than uh, taking cannabis with opioids. And the same with the non-opioid medication. So this is looking at, you know, the light blue is the strongly agree, the darker blue is agree. Using cannabis as a substitute or in conjunction with opioids, the first one starting at the left is able to decrease opioid use. So as you can see, agreed or strongly agreed they were able to reduce their opioid use. Experienced side effects from opioids, the majority of patients. Cannabis side effects were more tolerable. 
92% agreed with that. Cannabis was more effective than opioids. So, I mean, we all know, despite everything that Alex just presented to you, pain is a subjective experience. And if the patients are subjectively reporting they're feeling better, I mean, who am I to argue? And this was just data from two ecological analyses showing, again, opioid-related deaths 20 to 25% lower. Um, this is uh, this guy, this... Um, Bonky guy did several research projects looking at medication class use before and after initiation of cannabis. So it's not just the opioids, but opioids before initiation of cannabis, 65% were using. After starting cannabis, only 18%. So it was a 72% reduction. NSAIDs, a 66% reduction. Even for rheumatoid arthritis, disease-modifying drugs, which I'm not sure I recommend doing this, 75% reduction. Antidepressants, 64, so forth and so on. Uh, same researcher doing a multi-site online survey that still is ongoing, 1,300 participants, 80% reported substituting cannabis for traditional medications, 53% for opioids, 22% for benzos. And again, the same kind of data was reflected here, reduction in the use of their other analgesics. Um, changes in pain since starting, as you can see, decreased a lot is 60%, decreased a little bit is another 20, 25%. So really clinically meaningful results. Changes in health improved a lot at the green, at the top, across the board, whether it's males, females, novels, novice patients, experienced, and so forth. Um, this was data looking at the rat tail flick test, and who doesn't love a good rat tail flick test? Boy, there's a career option for you. Yep, we're going to put your butt on a hot plate and turn the heat on and see how long it takes you to move your tail. Anyway, morphine preceded by THC was significantly more potent than morphine alone. So as you can see, the effective dose, 50%, shifted from 28.8 down to 13.1. And this was seen with all the opioids. They all showed a lower effective dose. You can see that the, the y-axis here is the maximum possible effect uh, is significantly greater with any opioid on, on board along with cannabis. So, okay, so maybe you don't care about a rat in pain. Maybe, you know, your heart doesn't extend to that, but still. Um, and they hypothesize why the heck this is. Uh, so combination therapy, you know, it's hotly argued that can cannabinoids can prevent the development of tolerance and withdrawal from opioids. They can rekindle opioid analgesia after a prior dose has been uh, become ineffective, perhaps due to tolerance, and might interrupt signaling in the opioid receptor system, affecting both cravings and withdrawal severity. So even though Alex's data is very compelling, I think there might be something to the point that maybe the people who are saying it's doing a better job for me, it's treating something. I mean, when we look at pain and we look at the total pain experience, it's not just physical pain, there's psychological pain and spiritual pain. So the people who are using opioids inappropriately to chemically cope with what's going on in their life, perhaps cannabis is meeting that need, and maybe it's not so much a direct physiologic effect. So who thinks that Alex won this battle and that cannabis really does not reduce opiate deaths? Okay, who thinks I completely skunked her and I, I got it going on here? Hmm? And I think the rest the of rest them still know. <laughs> they don't want to vote. So what do you really think? I agree. I mean, I think the data that we have is not very robust in one direction or another, but I think as more states are legalizing medical cannabis and where the data is more generalizable as a result, hopefully we'll be able to obtain better information regarding the opioid-related death stand from an opioid-related death standpoint because 
as use increases, that could potentially become another public health crisis. So I think we need the information in order to better serve our patients and make informed decisions. Nicely said. Nicely said. That Penn study you were looking at earlier, uh, did they separate out prescription prescribed opioids versus illicit opioids? Because we've had increased opioid deaths all over the place from the illicit stuff. I'm not sure, Scott. I'd have to look back at it. That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. I thought they used prescription data. I'd have to double check. Yeah, but that's a good point. Yeah. All right, so it might have been on the fence with the cannabis dealio, but I got her dead to rights on the gabapentin thing. I mean, this is, I'm so comfortable here. She is going down. So who thinks gabapentin absolutely increases the risk of opioid induced death? Slam dunk, you betcha. Who's with me on that one? I'm going to use two hands for that. Wow. wow. Who thinks what? Tell me more. And who says, no way, Jose? Wow. What do you think? Um, I don't know, but you're going down. So I, gotta, I liked the uh, layout of the hands. Yeah, I bet you did. But you'll All soon right. find out I really don't have a, a major leg to stand on here, and I'll be the first to admit that. So when it comes to labeled indications, really gabapentin is labeled for seizures and post-herpetic neuralgia. Pregabalin has labeled indications for seizures, post-herpetic neuralgia, diabetic neuropathy, and fibromyalgia. But we know that both gabapentin and pregabalin, you know, 80% of gabapentin has been used for off-label indications, some of which are shown here. So everything from anxiety, sleep, refractory hiccups, cough, detox, um, specifically opioid detox, general neuropathic pain, the list goes on and on, chronic low back pain. So areas where we really don't have a whole lot of data, a lot of times we're seeing gabapentin thrown on in an adjuvant capacity. So we'll see whether or not this is potentially harmful. So let's take a look at the good here. So the neuropathic pain, cancer pain, and cancer neuropathic pain, this was a systematic review of 883 abstracts. So in this study, gabapentin was administered as an add-on therapy to 22 patients with neuropathic cancer pain, only partially responsive to opioid therapy. The, they looked at global pain, burning pain, shooting pain episodes, and allodynia, all assessed separately. And gabapentin was given for at least a week, and efficacy was assessed after 7 to 14 days of therapy. So they found that global pain scores, burning pain intensity, and episodes of shooting pain all decreased in frequency. Allodynia was found in nine patients at baseline and disappeared during seven during gabapentin administration. And 20 patients judged the new drug as being efficacious in relieving their symptoms. Go to the next one. Yep. So the purpose of this study was to determine the analgesic effect of the addition of gabapentin to opioids in the management of neuropathic cancer pain. So this was a multi-center, randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled, 10-day trial. Um, They included 121 patients, so again, a relatively small study, with neuropathic pain secondary to cancer that was partially controlled with systemic opioids. They titrated gabapentin from 600 milligrams per day to 800 
1,800 milligrams per day, in addition to allowing them to continue whatever stable opioid dose they were on, and extra opioid doses were available if needed. So the average daily pain rated on the 0 to 10 numeric pain scale was the main outcome measure, with secondary outcome measures including the intensity of burning pain, shooting lancinating pain, dysesthesias, the number of daily episodes of lancinating pain, the presence of allodynia, and daily extra doses of opioid analgesic. So 79 patients received gabapentin and around 70% completed the study, 41 received placebo, and 76% completed the study. And the analysis of covariance in the intent-to-treat population showed a significant difference in average pain intensity between the gabapentin and placebo group. The dysesthesia score showed a statistically significant difference as well, and there was similar withdrawal between both study arms. So the authors concluded that gabapentin is effective in improving analgesia in patients with neuropathic cancer pain already on systemic opioid therapy. Now, in this next study, the authors compared the efficacy of a combination of gabapentin and morphine with that of each as a single agent in patients with painful diabetic neuropathy or post-herpetic neuralgia. It was a randomized, double-blind, active, placebo-controlled, four-period crossover trial. So patients received daily active placebo, which was lorazepam, sustained-release morphine, gabapentin, and then a combination of gabapentin and morphine, each given orally for five weeks. Their primary outcome measure was the mean daily pain intensity in patients receiving a maximal tolerated dose with several other secondary outcomes assessed as well. 57 patients underwent randomization, 41 completed the trial, and the authors concluded that gabapentin and morphine combined combined achieved better analgesia at lower doses of each drug, importantly, than either as a single agent, with constipation, sedation, and dry mouth as the most frequently reported adverse effects. This next study aimed to compare the effectiveness and safety of gabapentin combined with an opioid versus opioid monotherapy for the management of neuropathic cancer pain. And in this study, patients were randomized to one of two treatment protocols. So gabapentin adjuvant to ongoing opioid therapy titrated according to pain response while opioid dose was kept constant or continuation of opioid monotherapy according to the World Health Organization pain ladder approach. Changes in pain intensity, allodynia, and analgesic drug consumption were evaluated at days 4 and 13, and side effects were also assessed. So both treatments resulted in a significant reduction in pain intensity at days 4 and 13 compared to baseline. However, the mean pain intensity for burning and shooting pain was significantly higher in the opioid monotherapy group compared to the combination group. So authors concluded that gabapentin added to an opioid provides better relief of neuropathic pain in cancer patients than opioid monotherapy, and this combination of gabapentin and an opioid may may represent a potential first-line regimen for the management of pain in these patients. Now, this was another study looking at neuropathic pain in cancer patients. The aim was to see whether low-dose gabapentin is effective in treating cancer-related neuropathic pain when combined with low-dose amipramine in this case. So in terms of the results, they found that low-dose 
gabapentin and mipramine combo, decrease the total pain score and daily paroxysmal pain episodes with several patients developing mild adverse symptoms in the four groups and only about three patients discontinuing treatment. The authors concluded that low-dose gabapentin antidepressant combination with opioids was effective in managing neuropathic cancer pain without any really serious adverse events. Now this, we can skip this one for the sake of time. Okay. Gabapentin, this was again assessing the efficacy and safety of gabapentin, this time with amitriptyline, along with opioids in patients suffering from neuropathic pain and malignancy. So another study looking at cancer-related neuropathic pain. 88 adult patients between 18 and 70 years of age with neuropathic pain and stage 3 malignant disease. They were matched for baseline characteristics and randomly assigned to one of two groups. So group A received oral tramadol and gabapentin, and group B received oral tramadol and amitriptyline. The treatment duration of each patient was around six months, and the visual analog scale was the primary outcome. They found a decline in the visual analog scale pain score from baseline in both groups in the early phase of the study, though there was no statistically detectable difference between them really at any study point. And similar changes were seen in secondary outcomes as well. There was also a similar um, incidence of adverse events in both groups. So the authors concluded that amitriptyline may be a suitable alternative for the management of neuropathic pain in cancer patients, although gabapentin is already widely used for this purpose. The lower cost of amitriptyline may favor patient compliance with lesser number of dropouts, although we know, generally speaking, that amitriptyline tends to have more frequently reported adverse events. Now, what about, you know, this is our bread and butter working in hospice and palliative care. In this study, authors evaluated the use of adjuvant pain medications in patients admitted to an inpatient palliative care unit and whether their use affects pain scores or opioid opioid dosing. It was a retrospective observational study of patients admitted to this inpatient unit over a three-month period with a diagnosis of cancer already on opioid therapy. 77 patients were eligible, and around 84% were already taking an adjuvant medication. The most commonly prescribed adjuvant was gabapentin, around 70% of patients, and 57% of patients were already taking more than one adjuvant. So they concluded that adjuvant agents are used in over 80% of those patients treated for cancer pain. Gabapentin, we know from all these prior studies and clinical practices, frequently used as an adjuvant for cancer pain. And previous studies have showed that opioids combined with gabapentin for the management of cancer pain have reduced the dose of opioids. So the objective of this study was to explore the clinical effects and patient satisfaction this time of OxyContin compared with gabapentin in the treatment of severe cancer pain. So the authors concluded that OxyContin, when combined with gabapentin used in severe cancer pain, can control pain effectively, decrease the dose of OxyContin and the cost of cancer pain relief, and reduce the incidence of adverse effects such as nausea and vomiting and constipation, increasing overall quality of life. We can skip this one. So apparently my little baby's confused. Apparently she thinks I said 
gabapentin is not a good drug. Did I ever say that? Did you hear me say that? No, I, thought I did I heard not you say that. that. I said, if you combine gabapentin with an opioid, you're increasing the risk of death. I was never saying it's not a good drug. It's an awesome drug. But here's the bottom line. Gabapentin blocks respiratory tolerance of morphine started in mice and in men, frankly. So we know that after about a week of being on an opioid, you get some tolerance to the respiratory depressant effects, and gabapentin blocks that. This is not good news, my friends. So there's the whole mechanism if you're really interested in it, but it is what it is. So we're looking at the minute volume here. And as you can see, look what pregabalin does. It reduces the minute volume. So as you can see, it's causing respiratory depression. This is looking at an IV injection of pregabalin. Look at the minute volume. Boy, that sucker tanked. Look at that. And here, same thing. Here's with morphine alone. Here's with the pregabalin. This is not good news, is it? I don't care how pretty gabapentin is. This is not a good look. Also, we know with what's going on today, gabapentin and other adjuvant drug prescriptions have really been increasing, a 24% increase in gabapentin from 2004 to 2015, which directly correlates with the deaths from gabapentinoids, of which 80% of these people are also on an opioid. This is real data. I mean, I know I was on thin ground with the, the uh, cannabinoids, but here, I got this solid. Between 2012 and 15, there's a fourfold increase in gabapentin overdoses, which correlates with the opioid reform legislation, so prescribers are using this more. 94% of, of the overdoses are legitimate prescriptions, 84% who overdosed were known to misuse or abuse drugs by history. So as you can see, here's where people really started to increase the prescribing. And uh, you can see the, the death rate really, really going up here. Gabapentin prescriptions going up. The log number of deaths, the correlation coefficient here is 0.95. Yeah, take that bad boy to the bank. So heroin and gabapentin are increasingly being used together. I should know. I work in Baltimore. I actually saw a T-shirt in a catalog the other day. It said, Baltimore, we're not just about murder. So between murder and heroin, <laughs> dang, you should vacation in Baltimore. It's yes, depressing. you should. <laughs> Did you say no thanks? Yes. I'm wounded. <laughs> no crab cakes that good, right? Anyway, so it's not uncommon to see high-dose gabapentin, 12 grams or more. Often people will use it to self-medicate when they can't get their opioid choice for, for withdrawal. Easy to get. It's being increasingly stolen from pharmacies, too. And the misuse of pregabalin is even higher than gabapentin. So when you look at the percentage of positive gabapentin overdose deaths, I was just in Kentucky. Look at poor Kentucky, 41%. 41%. Anybody here from Kentucky? Yeah, it's been yeah, nice knowing so you. Sorry, guys. <laughs> North Carolina, 20%. I mean, this, this is not good news. So some take-home points here is gabapentin on abuse absolutely is following on the heels of the opioid epidemic as regulations on opiates become tighter. The exact prevalence of misuse is not known, but it is certainly greater when combined with an opioid. Prescribers should be aware of the misuse and screen patients for risk, just like we do for opioids now. And exposure to moderate doses with an opioid increases the risk of mortality 1.6-fold, so caution is needed. And you, I'm sure you've seen that big paper that was published showing, you know, the gabapentin this is a dose-related effect. The higher the gabapentinoid dose, the more likely. So who won this round? Gabapentins, who agrees with Alex? Gabapentins do not affect opioid death rate. Hey, I got You've got some. one little soldier. That's Thank all you, you sir. got. Just because you're cuter Thank than you. me. That's the only reason he voted for you. Who is with me? The gabapentinoids absolutely can increase. Uh-oh. Fine, fine, fine. I totally got that one. Any questions for us? Yeah. If you have a list of 
Sure, I'd be happy to share that with yeah. you. Sure. Yeah, shoot me an email. I'd be happy to yeah. share them with you. Yeah, absolutely. We have a letter. You scan it, come up here later, and I'll give my email address. I have my card as Dr. well. Dr. Glick is waving the microphone. I will stick up here for a few more minutes if you have a question. Thank you so much. Do you have a card? <laughs>